Ladies and gentlemen, a $5,000 reward will be offered each week on the program immediately following this announcement. You out there, you who think you've committed the perfect crime, the perfect murder, and that there are no clues, no witnesses, that your identity is unknown, listen. Somebody knows. Yes, you, wherever you may be, no matter where you're hiding, somewhere, sometime, someone listening to this program is going to bring you to justice. Yes? Somebody knows. The Columbia Broadcasting System presents... Somebody Knows, a program conceived in the public interest, dedicated to aiding the forces of law and order in the solution of this nation's unsolved crimes. Ladies and gentlemen, we're going to recreate for you tonight all the known facts in an actual unsolved murder. Somewhere, someone among you has had contact with the killer or killers. Someone whose identity need never be known has seen evidence or possesses information that can lead to the solution of this crime. In the public interest, the Columbia Broadcasting System offers a $5,000 reward for information leading to the arrest and conviction of the killer in this unsolved murder. We ask you, then, to please listen carefully, for you may be the one to win this reward. Somebody knows. It may be you. Now we open the files on one of this nation's unsolved murders. It's homicide file number 78654 of the St. Paul, Minnesota Police Bureau. The unsolved murder of Mary Agnes Kabiska. $5,000 reward for information leading to the arrest and conviction of her killer. The month is December, the year 1949. In a classroom on the campus of the University of Minnesota at Minneapolis, Dr. Stark R. Hathaway, professor of clinical psychology in the Department of Psychiatry and Neurology, is conducting a seminar with a graduate class. Listen carefully, please, because unknown to him at the time, this has a direct bearing on the case we're bringing to you tonight. Well, it seems to me, Dr. Hathaway, that you've led us into an even more interesting field. The discussion has covered a number of mental abnormalities and now turns to the subject of one specific type of insane or psychotic personality, one that presents an ever-present and terrifying threat to our society. Uh, What do you have in mind? Well, on the basis of the theories that we've analyzed so far, Dr. Hathaway, I'd say that psychotic personalities of this type tend to repeat their actions. It's more than a tendency. It's almost a certainty. Well, if that's true, then, what of the so-called homicidal maniac, the psychopathic killer? Wouldn't he follow the same repetitive cycle, too? In certain cases, unquestionably. The same pattern will be followed time and time again. All right. Um, Would it be possible, then, from a study of the circumstances surrounding a psychopathic murder to determine the type of personality of the killer? And then to determine whether such a crime would be repeated at a future date? It would be definitely possible. As a matter of fact, we have a case in point that occurred in St. Paul a little over a year ago. 
It involves the murder of a young girl by the name of Geraldine Mingo. I consider it a classic example of the type of criminal personality now under discussion. Let's examine the details and see if they can be helpful. The crime that Dr. Hathaway chose as an example took place on the stormy night of August 9th in the year 1948. As he described it to them, Geraldine Mingo, a small, slight girl of 17, was returning home late at night. Her destination was the residence at 1875 Pinehurst Avenue in St. Paul, where she was employed. It was around the hour of midnight that the Cleveland Avenue streetcar on which she was riding stopped at Pinehurst Avenue, and Geraldine Mingo got off. The dark, rain-swept street was deserted as she hurried along the two short blocks toward her home. Then, somewhere along the way, the street was no longer deserted. Other steps beside Geraldine sounded on the wet pavement of Pinehurst Avenue. And then... What, what do you want? I, I don't know what you're talking about. I don't... You, you must be crazy. Let go of me. No, stop that. Get away from me. Get away from me. Dr. Hathaway reminded his class that Geraldine Mingo's body was not found until the following morning, in an alley some three miles from where the murder had occurred. Her throat had been slashed viciously and both wrists had been cut after death. What's more, she hadn't been robbed or criminally assaulted. <coughs> Geraldine Mingo was a quiet, rather withdrawn girl and she had very few friends or acquaintances. At the time, no possible motives for the crime were evident. Gentlemen, it is my conclusion that Geraldine Mingo was killed by a psychopathic slayer. Dr. Hathaway? Yes. Did the St. Paul police know of your opinion at that time? Yes, they'd call me in for consultation. But the point I wish to make is that a type of homicidal compulsion was involved, which has its classic type of personality. A psychopathic personality that will react in a predictable fashion to a predictable set of circumstances. In the case of the murder of Geraldine Mingo, the circumstances were these. She was a small girl, underweight. She was shy and with few friends. The murder was committed on a quiet, deserted street. It took place around midnight. The weather was stormy, inclement. The girl had been riding a public conveyance on Cleveland Avenue. She got off alone, started to walk alone to her destination several blocks away. It is my belief that when a similar set of circumstances occurs in the future, and it will occur, the psychopathic slayer who took the life of Geraldine Mingo will almost certainly kill again. Dr. Hathaway's prediction to his class was made in December of 1949. On the evening of January 14, 1950, a certain set of circumstances begins to form. The time is approximately 7.30 p.m. The place, the residence of Orlando Teshian, music teacher and composer at 1899 Princeton Avenue, St. Paul, Minnesota. Mary Agnes Kabiska, adopted daughter of Mr. Teshian, is preparing to leave the house. Are you sure you won't change your mind and go with me, Father? No, no, Mary, no, not tonight. Not even for a performance of the Ballet Russe? No, not even for that, my dear. I'm afraid my love for the ballet cannot 
transcend my dislike for this miserable weather we're having. And with this cold of mine... Oh, of course, Father, I understand. Are you certain you wish to go, Mary? To see a performance of the Ballet Russe? You know, I couldn't miss that. Yes, yes, I do know. But on such a night as this, and to go alone... Eh, sometimes I wish I hadn't catered so to your love of music. Young, pretty girl like you should have more interest in friends. Young men. Oh, Father. No, I'm sorry. By all means, go, my dear. Go and enjoy yourself very much. Don't worry, Father. I will. Uh, don't wait up for me. I may be late. Be sure to call me if you're going to be very late, Mary. Of course, I always do. Good night, Father. Good night, my dear. The performance of the Ballet Russe is a brilliant one. The audience at Northrop Auditorium sits enthralled by it. But at 10.45, a full 30 minutes before the ballet will be over, almost as though she'd remembered an important appointment, Mary Agnes Kabiska suddenly rises to her feet and leaves. At 11.14 p.m. at the corner of University and Pryor Avenues, a bus driven by Ray Milligan of 1022 Cumberland Street, St. Paul, stops to let her aboard. Then it proceeds through the stormy and clement weather along Cleveland Avenue. It is now 11.30 p.m., a half hour before midnight, and the bus stops at the intersection of Cleveland and Princeton Avenues. And Mary Agnes Kabiska gets off at the same corner where she'd first taken a bus four hours before. And then her small, frail figure starts along the dark, deserted sidewalk toward her home, two and a half blocks away. In just a moment, we'll continue with Homicide File Number 78654 of the St. Paul, Minnesota Police Bureau. The unsolved murder of Mary Agnes Kabiska. And now, ladies and gentlemen, we'll continue with the rest of the factual information concerning the unsolved murder of Mary Agnes Kabiska. Remember, $5,000 reward will be paid for information leading to the arrest and conviction of her killer. And the name and identity of the person supplying that information need never be known. A few minutes after midnight on the morning of Sunday, January 15, 1950, a call comes into the alarm room of the police bureau at 10th and Minnesota Streets in St. Paul. Police bureau. Hello, police bureau. Yes? I want to report my daughter's missing. She 
left home early this evening. Should have been back some time ago. She could Just a minute, please. I'll connect you with the dispatcher. The operator at the police bureau switchboard plugs in another line. A phone rings in the dispatcher's office in the next room. Dispatcher. I would like to report my daughter's missing. I'm very worried about I I'd like now, to... What f- is your name, sir? Uh, Teshin. Orlando Teshin. Uh, how do you spell that, please? T-E-S-C-H-I-O-N. Teshin. T-E-S-C-H-I-O-N. Yes, and your daughter's name? Mary Agnes Kabiska. She's my adopted daughter. She left home early this evening. How do you spell Kabiska, Mr. Teshin? Kabiska. K-A-B-I-S-K-A. She left home early this evening. Should have been back at least half hour ago. I'm very worried about it. Kabiska. And your address... 1899 Princeton Avenue. 1899 she Princeton went to the performance Avenue. of the Ballet Russe at Northrop Auditorium at the university. Should have returned home at least half hour ago. Something has happened to her, I'm sure of that. Well, if your daughter's only a half hour late, I wouldn't be too worried about it, Mr. Teshin. In weather like this, traffic's pretty slow. She'll probably be showing up any minute. No, no, no. You, you don't know Mary. She's going to be late. She would have telephoned me. She always does. Something has happened to her. I know it. Something has happened. We have no report on anything here, Mr. Teshin. Why don't you call the Minneapolis police? If your daughter was over at the Northrop Auditorium and there was an accident or something, they'd have a record of it. You try Minneapolis. If your daughter hasn't come home in a couple of hours or so, you'd better call us again. At 2.30 a.m., Orlando Teshin calls the police bureau again. This is Orlando Teshin. My daughter Mary is still missing. The Minneapolis police don't know anything. I'm positive that Mary is fainted and is lying somewhere. She hasn't been well lately and... You must do something about it. You must. The dispatcher obtains a description of the missing girl and immediately checks all hospitals as well as the Minneapolis police. The calls reveal nothing. Then this missing persons bureau report is broadcast to all cars. To all cars, a missing girl, Mary Kabiska, 28, weight 90 pounds, medium complexion, 5 foot 1, reddish brown hair, blue eyes. Wearing a fur coat, white tasseled cap, yellow scarf, blue jacket, and green snowsuit. Left home to attend Ballet Russe at Northrop Hall, University of Minnesota. Has not returned. WPDS. At 3.02 a.m., a squad car is sent to the Teshin home to investigate the situation and check the neighborhood. At 3.55 a.m., the missing persons broadcast is repeated. Then at 8.33 a.m., the dispatcher's phone rings once more. Dispatcher. A girl. She's lying there in the snow. She's hurt. Where? In back of my place. A girl. What's your address, sir? Address? Uh, 839 Tuscarora Avenue. I was shoveling snow. It piled up pretty deep in my back walk. The one near the alley. And I was... Uh, And your name? Name? Uh, uh, Peter Thule. Peter J. Thule. T-H-U-L. Like I say, I was shoveling snow in the rear of my place near the alley. Then I came to this snowdrift, a big one it was, and right there... All right, Mr. Thule, don't touch anything. Keep everyone away from the area. We'll have someone down there right away. Squad 311, Squad 325, Cruiser 566, to rear of 839 Tuscarora Avenue. Investigate an injured woman. Squad 311, going to rear of 839, Tuscarora. 325, 839, Tuscarora. Cruiser 566, 839, Tuscarora. 8.35 a.m., WPDS. McAuliffe. Dispatcher, Lieutenant. 
I'm sorry to bother you at home, but we just got a report. Yes. An injured woman found buried in a snowdrift in the rear of 839 Tuscarora. Thought you'd better know, just in case it turns out to be something for homicide. Thanks, dispatcher. Send a white car for me. I'll be dressed by the time it gets here. Shortly afterwards, Detective Lieutenant Lester McAuliffe, head of homicide, arrives at the alley in the rear of 839 Tuscarora. The scene has already become a beehive of activity. Patrolman Trousseau has checked the body of the girl in the snowdrift and reported to the dispatcher that she is apparently dead. Lieutenant McAuliffe turns to Dr. Roy C. Heron, deputy county coroner and medical examiner. Yeah, Lieutenant, it's official. She's dead, all right. Thanks, Heron. Have you seen Dr. Dalton from the crime lab? Uh, right here, Lieutenant. Oh, good. We've taken photographs of everything we could find here at the scene. Everything we can lay our hands on is being checked for any possible clues. Then Lieutenant McAuliffe contacts the dispatcher on the radio of Cruiser 566. Hello, dispatcher. This is Lieutenant McAuliffe. May we have your missing persons list for the night? Lieutenant McAuliffe, only one person reported missing during the night. A girl. Name, Mary Kabiska, 28. Weight, 90 pounds. Medium complexion, 5 foot 1. Reddish brown hair. That's the girl, all right. Who reported her missing? A man named Orlando Teshin, her foster father, at 1899 Princeton Avenue. Send a car to pick him up and take him to the morgue for official identification. The body will be there by the time he arrives. And you better notify Chief Tierney. He's going to be very interested in the coroner's report on the killing of Mary Kabiska. The post-mortem examination is made by Deputy Coroner Heron. Upon its completion, Lieutenant McAuliffe takes the report to the office of Chief of Police Charles J. Tierney. A number of jagged cuts begin at right side of neck and become deeper as they approach the left. Three stab wounds penetrate the neck and emerge on the left side below the angle of the jaw. The trachea was severed across. There's a deep cut on the right wrist. No evidence of criminal assault. Well, Chief, does that sound familiar? It certainly does. Yes, Chief. Get hold of Dr. Stark R. Hathaway, University of Minnesota. Contact is established with Dr. Hathaway, and he leaves immediately for the police bureau. Upon his arrival, he goes at once to Chief Tierney's office. Doctor, you remember the killing of Geraldine Mingo? Quite well. Oh, of course. You told us that the Mingo killing had struck you as a repetitive type of crime, one that a psychopathic killer would be bound to repeat. Do you still think so? I do. As a matter of fact, Chief Tierney, the Mingo case came up for discussion in one of my classes last month. I said at the time that St. Paul could expect the killer to strike again, perhaps very soon. And the more I consider the possibility, the more convinced I am that another such killing is imminent. Why do you ask? Here, look through this. A post-mortem report made this morning. Tell me what you think of it. Hmm. Well, Doctor, what do you say? I'd say my predictions come true. With the full cooperation of the St. Paul Police Bureau, Dr. Hathaway immediately begins an exhaustive investigation of all the facts and circumstances surrounding the murder of Mary Agnes Kabiska. Meanwhile, Detective Lieutenant McAuliffe pursues a relentless examination and inquiry into every possible motive, every possible suspect or clue that might have even the remotest connection with her death. Relatives are questioned, neighborhood gossip investigated, telephone tips followed up. 
with a thoroughness typical of the St. Paul police, over 500 persons are interrogated. The results? Negative. Then, on January 24, 1950, a conference is held in an office on the campus of the University of Minnesota. Present are Chief of Police Charles J. Tierney, several of his assistants, and Dr. Stark R. Hathaway. Doctor, we're just about licked on this Kabiska killing, unless you've managed to come up with something for us. I've prepared an analysis for you, Chief Tierney, on the similarities and conclusions to be drawn in the Mingo and Kabiska cases. There it is. This? Oh, 28 pages, single-spaced. What's in it? Among other things, 21 points of similarity in the two killings. Similarities that indicate to me the repetitive nature of the crimes and that the killer is a psychopath. Hmm. You're convinced of that, aren't you? I am, to such an extent that you'll find a description of the killer in that analysis. Description? Not a physical one. A personality analysis that I've been able to make after reviewing the facts in these two cases. I think it gives a pretty clear picture of the man you're after. But it doesn't add a very optimistic note. What do you mean, Doctor? It has led me to the inescapable conclusion that these crimes are not at an end that the killer may already have become acquainted with his next victim. Oh? That the next victim will again be a waif of a girl. And that she will be stabbed in the neck and her body left in some significant locality, probably an alley. It is impossible to predict what the time interval may be between the killing of Mary Agnes Kabiska and the next victim. But one thing is certain. If he is not caught, this killer may repeat his crimes again and again and again. Now listen carefully, please. Listen, all of you, wherever you may be. We're going to give you a recapitulation of all the pertinent facts in the unsolved murder of Mary Agnes Kabiska, including Dr. Hathaway's personality description of her killer. Better make a note of them. And remember, by following the instructions we shall give you in a moment... You may be the one to earn a $5,000 reward. Now here are the actual facts in the case. Mary Agnes Kabiska, 28 years of age, was stabbed to death somewhere in the vicinity of her home at 1899 Princeton Avenue, St. Paul, Minnesota. The date? Early morning, Sunday, January 15th, 1950. The murder weapon was a narrow-bladed instrument, possibly a penknife. Very keen on at least one edge. Her purse is known to be missing. A drawstring-type purse with a cardboard bottom. No metal on it. The purse is black, with gold thread running through it in stripes. Inside the purse should have been her keys and a pair of opera glasses, lorgnette-type, with mother-of-gold coating in a pinkish cast. Also missing is the double mitten from her right hand. The inside mitten was black. The outside one was black with an embroidered flower in red with green leaves. It is the theory of Dr. Stark R. Hathaway, professor of clinical psychology at the University of Minnesota, that the murder of Mary Kabiska is the second in a series of repetitive crimes performed by a psychopathic killer. Here is Dr. Hathaway's point-by-point -point analysis of that killer. Please listen very carefully. Point number one. The man is somehow connected with the neighborhood in which the killing took place. Two? He has an automobile, probably an inconspicuous one, possibly a small truck. Number three? He has time to roam the neighborhood on at least some nights of the week around the hours of 10 p.m. to 1 a.m., either in the car 
or on foot. Four, the killer had opportunity to hear about Mary Kabiska. Very likely knew her, at least by name. Possibly because he is in a business that contacts the public. Five, he is probably between 20 and 45 years of age. Six, he is likely to be married with a probable deep maladjustment in that marriage. Seven, this man may be intelligent and a capable person who is thought of as reliable. He may have a good job or be in business. Not a person readily open to routine suspicion. Eight, he is likely to have had a nervous breakdown in the past. Nine, the killer will probably suffer from sullen or moody spells, though not be thought of as particularly queer or insane. Ten, he will probably be considered as having less than average interest in women and girls. Eleven, the killer usually carries the knife with him. You've just heard Dr. Hathaway's description, his personality analysis of the probable killer of Mary Agnes Kabiska, a psychopathic killer, one who, unless he is caught, will repeat his murderous crimes again and again and again. Ladies and gentlemen, if any of you possesses information that may have bearing on the unsolved murder of Mary Agnes Kabiska, follow these instructions so that your name and identity need never be made known unless you wish. Now listen carefully. Write your information on a plain sheet of paper. Do not sign your name. Instead, sign it with six numbers, any arrangement of any six numbers. Then tear off a blank corner of that paper with a ragged edge. Write the same six numbers on that corner and keep it. Mail the rest of the paper with the information to Somebody Knows. Hollywood 28, California. Tell nobody what you have done, and your name will not be revealed by us to anyone, nor will you have to appear in person. If the information you've supplied leads to the arrest and conviction of the killer of Mary Agnes Kabiska, we will announce your signature number on this program. Then, if you don't want your name to be known, go to your lawyer, doctor, priest, minister, or rabbi, and have him present the torn corner of the paper to any CBS station. In this way, you will not have to appear in person. If the torn corner matches the original paper containing the information, the $5,000 reward will be yours. Remember, you, wherever you are, you whose name need never be known, you may earn a reward of $5,000. <laughs> Next week, at the same time, we'll present another true case history of unsolved murder. Number 235-1950 in the homicide files of the Philadelphia, Pennsylvania Police Department. The murder of Joseph P. Bohannock. Remember, you out there, you who have murdered in cold blood and think you've gotten away with it, listen. You cannot escape. There is no perfect crime. Remember, you are not unknown. Somebody knows.
Tonight's case was written by Sidney Marshall from information in the files of the St. Paul, Minnesota Police Bureau. Research was by Maurice Zim. Music was composed and played by Milton Charles. Dr. Stark R. Hathaway was portrayed by Harry Bartell. Somebody Knows is a James L. Safier production in association with CBS by arrangement with the Chicago Sun-Times and is based on a copyright owned by W.L. Finstad. It was narrated and directed by Jack Johnstone. In order to be eligible for the reward, letters containing information leading to the arrest and conviction of the killer or killers of Mary Agnes Cabista must be postmarked not later than midnight, August 2nd, 1950. Arrest of the guilty person or persons must occur within 90 days of that date, and conviction must be within one year of tonight's broadcast. If more than one person gives the information leading to conviction, our judges will divide the $5,000 reward among them in proportion to the importance the judges attach to the fact supplied. And in this, the decision of our judges will be final. Until next Thursday at the same time, this is Frank Goss saying good night for... Somebody knows.